You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. It's unbelievable that the expression, we are living in unprecedented times, has become a cliché. Since early 2020, so much has happened to us, so quickly, and with so little warning, that the only response anyone seems to have is, well, now what? Still, simply because so many extraordinary events have occurred this year, 2020 has much to teach us. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. We've invited court administrators whose courts have endured violent demonstrations that have lasted for months, wildfires that have turned day into night and made the air unbreathable, and of course, the coronavirus. This month is part one of two episodes where our panel shares the lessons they have experienced firsthand. What can we learn from the experiences of these courageous court administrators, their staffs, and their courts? How will they be updating their continuity of operations plans? And what advice do they have for the rest of us? So let's join my co-host and our panel. I'm joined today by my co-host, Alice Roberts, recently retired from the Alaska court system. Our panel includes Barbara Marcille, trial court administrator for the 4th Judicial District in Portland, Oregon, Elizabeth Baldwin, court administrator for the Municipal Court in Seattle, Washington, Bob Fleshman, court executive officer for the Superior Court in Napa County, California, Michael Rowdy, court executive officer for the Superior Court in San Diego, California, and Elizabeth Rambo, Trial Court Administrator for the Lane County Circuit Court in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you all for joining today's video podcast. Let me turn it over to Alice Roberts for the first question. Thank you, Peter. Let's start by talking about what your courts have had to go through with the demonstrations. How did they affect court business and how did they affect your staff? Elizabeth, how did the Capitol Hill ongoing protests affect your court and your staff? Well, our court was impacted in a number of ways. The the CHOP zone or the CHAZ zone, as it was also called, was across the interstate and probably seven or eight blocks away from us. So we weren't directly there in proximity. However, there were a number of demonstrations, and, and these were happening all summer too, but they were really ramped up during the uh, time that the CHOP zone was there. And they passed in front of the courthouse and um, in a few instances the courthouse and we're on like a civic campus and some of the facilities had to be locked down and so it was during a time when our courthouse was not yet open to the public but we did have some staff in the building and so they were disconcerted and, and concerned about personal safety as well as commuting so we kept in touch with them. We had marshals in the building. Uh, those, those are our court security staff, just keep people aware. For a time also, during the CHOP zone, the street in front of our uh, courthouse was blocked off with cement barricades and law enforcement. And thankfully, again, that was when the courthouse was blocked, so it didn't impede access to the courthouse. Um, we did also have 
two weekends, there were protests on our plaza and uh, many of our windows were broken on the front. So we now have, it's boarded up uh, with, uh, well boarded up obviously, and it's black paint to kind of discourage graffiti. And then there were a lot of people who were arrested and booked. And so we had to deal with that through our jail court. But I'd also say, I mean, it had a profound effect on staff. One of the things we did is our race and social justice uh, change team held a couple of virtual forums for people just to, uh, to share their feelings, experiences, and discuss how the events are impacting them. And I think that was something that a lot of people, I think we had probably over a hundred of our staff participate, and I really think that was helpful. And we've also really made it, I want to say, evident that our RSJI training is mandatory and it has been going on this summer. It was already planned, but it was just so timely. So, um, and, and I think people have been afraid for their safety um, and it's it continues ongoing and so we try to keep communication going with staff but it, it's been it's been a tough summer I can imagine thank you Barbara Portland has had to deal with demonstrations nightly demonstrations for months now tell us how your court has held up that long we it's been over four months for us of nightly demonstrations um, our court, unfortunately, is directly in the corridor where the protests and demonstrations have been happening. Um, two of our busiest courthouses are located in the downtown Portland um, corridor, our Justice Center, which handles all of our arraignments, as well as our historic courthouse. Um, actually, three of our courthouses, because our newly constructed courthouse, the one I'm in today, is also in the downtown corridor. So we've had three courthouses that are in the, the, the basically six block area that has been really the main target of the downtown area. The uh, first weekend of the protests in at the end of May, when we first had our protests, our Justice Center, we had a lot of windows broken that day, uh, that weekend, and the Justice Center where our arraignments are held was um, really heavily damaged. The plate glass windows at the public entrance were broken, and uh, intruders entered the building and set fire inside the building. The jail is located in that building and the Portland Police Bureau's central precinct is also located in that building, um, as well as our four arraignment courtrooms. And so when that fire was set in that building, it meant that it destroyed the public entrance and public access to that building. So for the last four plus months, we haven't been able to get public into our arraignment facility um, and haven't been able to do out of custody arraignments. Our historic courthouse, which we have just successfully moved out of last week and are now in the new courthouse, was also targeted. We had over 30 windows broken in that building. The entire first and second floors have been boarded up for months. We never did close during the pandemic. We have greatly restricted operations, but we've remained open. Both our Justice Center and our historic courthouse have remained open the entire time. And so it's been a real challenge for our employees and our judges that have had to work on site in the facility. We've had you know, nightly graffiti on, on all of the, the boards and the buildings, the walls, as well as things like excrement and garbage in the doorways, fire set, 
decorative trees chopped down, all sorts of crazy things. Um, monuments have all been destroyed in the area. We have a huge encampment in the park blocks that are in between these buildings. And so our staff um, and myself are frequently walking back and forth between the buildings that, you know, conducting our business. And so people are shouting things. It's, it's been a really hostile environment. It's been primarily targeted at um, law enforcement. But what you've heard about is the federal courthouse and the law enforcement, but the real um, difficulty for our court was that there was a real lack of recognition in city and county leadership as well as state leadership that the court was being impacted. And this was impacting, we had to bring in jurors, we've had to conduct two jury trials over the course of this pandemic, we've had to uh, impanel multiple grand juries, so we've had many times when we've had members of the public lining up to come into our buildings as there's graffiti being cleaned off the buildings and excrement being cleaned out. I've stood on the sidewalk directing people where to step and where not to step so that they didn't step in. Um, terrible things. So it's been it's been a challenge. Wow, it sure sounds like it. And it's I find it interesting. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to find coverage of local courthouses and the impact on local courthouses. And really, all I came across was you know, the federal courthouse. So I can imagine there's been a lack of attention there. Thank you. The West Coast has suffered from some of the worst wildfires in recent memory. The photos from some cities have been absolutely bone chilling. Bob, how did your court respond to the wildfires? Yeah, and I'll I'll clarify that by saying um, we have had the worst wildfires in recorded history over the last four years. Um, records being broken in consecutive years, which are not the records that we want to be broken, of course. With regards to the safety and security of folks in and around Napa, we still have one person who's been evacuated from the latest fire, and there's been two major fires uh, just in the last six weeks in wine country. But it's interesting, when I woke up this morning, I realized the coincidence of today's podcast recording, because it was three years ago today that we woke up to smoke and ash raining down all over the Bay Area. Um, when, as the 2017 wine country fires had started uh, overnight uh, and had grown to 60,000 acres in a span of just 14 hours. And to put those fires into context, those were really part of a whole statewide rash of fires that started that night. Some 200 fires, 21 of them major. Um, but the wine country fires in 2017 are the ones that still stick in everybody's memory. Those, those are the ones that made the news burnt a quarter million acres, 9,000 buildings, most of them homes, 44 people died, and they raged for a span of about three weeks. And it really, the speed at which that they occurred, you know, they were accompanied by 70 mile an hour winds overnight, really couldn't have happened at a worse time when people were in bed. And it was tough. I wasn't the court executive at the time, but uh, I can speak to the, how the court responded to that and subsequent fires. We've had fires every single year, four years in a row in and around Napa County. And um, I would say that our our efforts to respond have revolved around three areas. One, the health and safety of our staff, um, whether it's you know issuing everybody N95 masks, the people or HR side of things, meaning you know being flexible with leave and showing that you care about people, just checking in makes all the difference. And I think the third thing, is how we communicate with them. And I know we're gonna be covering communication in more detail later, so I won't um, belabor that point at the moment, but they really focus in those areas. And of course, the planning part, and I will give credit out to a statewide level to our state judicial council because 
They um, follow up with courts and provide tools and options for continuity of operations to ensure uh, it's always on our mind on an annual basis to update our um, operations plans. Liz, what was it like in Eugene as the fires raged? What did your court have to do to respond? Oh, thanks for asking, Peter. It was so much like what Bob's described for the 2017 fires. In fact, what happened in Western Oregon was that Monday, Labor Day, was a beautiful day, a fall day in Western Oregon. And um, by 4 o'clock, the fires had started. And before the sun set, it was obliterated by smoke and ash. The intensity, you know, we're no stranger in Western Oregon to wildfires in the fall season, but the incredible intensity of this event and the extent of it, uh, we're in Eugene, it affected all of Oregon from the most southern border to Washington and then into the Seattle area, I'm sure. So the intensity of it was just absolutely incredible and what we had to respond to by Tuesday morning, um, we realized that uh, as we returned to work that we were going to have a lot to deal with from employee issues. We had many employees here in Eugene that were evacuated from their homes, as did every court, I think, in Western Oregon. And we had so a lot of HR issues, like Bob was talking about, communication issues with employees as they were being evacuated, people coming and going from the building as the evacuation levels uh, would change in their area. And that was extremely challenging in the COVID environment where we're already down staff. Um, we also had to quickly deal with air quality, both outside safety and inside safety in our building and quickly, um, in, you know, get our um, county involved in that discussion and understanding how it was affecting the staff in the building already by Tuesday. So those are the two things we had to do quickly to respond. Uh, frankly, by Thursday, we were closed. Uh, because we couldn't stay in the building anymore. And we we really held out, <laughs> but we had to close. Barbara, how did your court respond to the wildfires on top of the nightly demonstrations? <laughs> on top of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was a challenge, again, um, yes, just to, to echo what Liz and Bob have said, we were really heavily impacted. Um, the Portland metro area is completely surrounded by forest. Um, we're bordered by Clackamas County, where one of the largest forest fires was really raging. And a huge percentage of our employees, including myself, live in Clackamas County, and the entire county was under some level of evacuation order. So many of us were impacted, had to you know, pack up and prepare to evacuate or evacuate. The smoke was extremely heavy. We've been through a lot of forest fire seasons, but um, our new building is directly on the waterfront and you could not see across the river. I took pictures. The fog was so dense, you couldn't even see the bridges. It was really difficult for our employees because most of our employees work in our historic downtown courthouse, which has a very poor antiquated HVAC system. Our new courthouse, which we're in now, has a wonderful, um, highly improved HVAC system, but the air filtration system in our old building was just very, very poor. The employees had to continue to come to work. We, we have about a third of our employees that are working on site. About two thirds of our employees are still teleworking, but about a hundred employees work downtown and come on site every day. And we remained open throughout the wildfires. Our presiding judge decided not to close because our move to our new building was a few weeks out. We've been impacted by so many things and have had so many restrictions that any further closure, closures would just, you know, really further exacerbate our backlogs and, 
make it even more difficult for us to recover once we moved into our new building. So um, the decision was made not to close, but we questioned it every day. We wondered if it was the right choice. Um, it, it was difficult to breathe. We sent employees home every day that were having difficulty with uh, anybody that had particular sensitivities. We, um, you know, the, the interesting juxtaposition between wearing masks and um, breathing smoke um, that I think made things even more challenging for employees. I know I found it really difficult to to um, breathe. You felt that the smoke was contained in your mask. So morale, you know, just has really been on a slow um, and then rapidly increasing plummet. Um, it, it's been a challenge for us, for sure. Mike? Sadly, San Diego is no stranger to wildfires, and I know you already have protocols in place. How did they work out? Unlike others, we've been relatively lucky this year. Uh, we had one 17,000 acre brush fire out in East County and ever, been relatively unscathed beyond that. Back in 2007, we had a historic wildfire, hundreds of thousands of people evacuated. Uh, we actually were closed for a week because we couldn't get any security or deputies, they were all on the front line. And so from that experience, we learned so much that we have continued to apply going forward, whether it's in the pandemic era, or whether it's in uh, the wildfire era, or something else catastrophic like an entire electrical failure that happened to us as well at one point. So we've had our share of crises, but this year we've been relatively unscathed. I think the worst I can say about it is with that fire we had in the East County, we did have difficulty with air quality. Uh, we lost the sun for two days. It was eerie that it was over 90 degrees with no sun. Um, and I'm sure others have experienced the same phenomena. Uh, but fortunately this year we had no judges or staff lose their homes or be otherwise impacted. So unlike the other experiences, uh, this has been a good year for us. The smoke from the wildfires obviously left folks choking. This must have been a dilemma for courts that have been told to maximize their ventilation systems to minimize the spread of the coronavirus. Bob, did you have HVAC issues during the fires? Yeah, normally when uh, normally when there wildfire smoke um, and other uh, particulates are, are in the air following a fire, even if it's 100 or 200 miles away, we've been severely affected. If you're just in the right downstream, you know, uh, the wind is flowing in just the right direction. I mean, when the Paradise Fire hit two years ago, which is 150 miles from here, the air quality was above 300 because the wind was just perfectly over Napa, guiding it from from uh, that area, uh, from the campfire. And so we had to act then. And so it's not always when it's just next door, which is, you know, or, or down the street or the next town over. And, you know, Napa's lucky in that all of three of our courthouses are within a mile of each other in downtown Napa. And generally that area has been, um, fires haven't been here. And despite all the fires around us, they haven't been, they haven't come through downtown, which of course is, uh, would have been more catastrophic. So we haven't ever had to close because of any of the fires, floods, earthquakes. Um, we've had everything but locusts. And uh, but I'm confident they're coming. Um, with regard to the um, or the murder hornets, I'm not quite sure. But with regard to the, um, the smoke issues and, and HVAC, it's complicated. And uh, normally, in those situations, you close all the dampers so that you're not bringing in outside air, and um, you know hope, hope that you did it early and not every after everything was inside. I mean, technically, you're supposed to keep it open about 10% uh, because of air pressure. So in 
a door opens, you're not sucking smoke in, you're actually pushing it out. But uh, with COVID, that added another layer of complexity and actually confrontation, if you will. Some of our buildings are owned by the county, some are owned by the state. You know, we're tenants in all of them. And, uh, and that's how it works in California. And so part of our challenge was, you know, with the pandemic and the requirement that, you know, HVAC is on 24-7, not just during business hours, okay? Damper is 100% open, uh, which all makes sense when you're trying to um, uh, refresh the air as quickly and as often as possible. Well, when the AQI is 400, like it was a week ago here, that's a problem. Uh, or what it was five weeks ago when it was above 400 in downtown Napa because we were surrounded by fire, you know, twice in six weeks. And um, that's a problem because I can't keep the dampers open at 100% because I'm just basically pouring a chimney into our courthouses and that doesn't work. And so the delicate balance act of fighting with engineers and sometimes state level policy folks are like, no, it's COVID. We have to keep them open. I'm like, I'm breathing a chimney. All of us, we're going to have to shut the court down. And when you say phrases like that, people tend to perk up a little more versus, uh, you know, stomping your feet and hollering. So that got folks' attention and, you know, required a little persuasion. But, you know, we ended up cl mostly closing all of our dampers to about 90 percent. Um, but we all, what we also did to mitigate um, inside, you know, still keeping we have two issues to deal with, pandemic and fire smoke, is um, we brought in portable air scrubbers. So we have about a dozen in each courthouse on full blast all the time and also doing port mobile air AQI monitoring. So just little handheld devices that show what the AQI level is as well as CO2 level uh, in the buildings. And there was never a time once the scrubbers were in that, that we were in unhealthy ranges in the courthouses. And that's how we were able to stay open um, because we, there was definitely pressure to close because you couldn't see more than two blocks away. Liz, did you run into air circulation problems in your court during the fires? In one way, Peter, um, that's a great question because I think that the COVID has made us all unfortunate experts on courthouse ventilation systems. I mean, who knew that someday we'd have to know all about MERV ratings and, uh, you know, air, fresh air quality mixes. Seriously. But we were prepared for the fires because we already knew about MERV ratings and fresh air quality mixes for our buildings because of COVID. So. Um, luckily for me, my county was very proactive and reached out to me immediately about what they could do reasonably in terms of shutting the fresh air down. Like with Bob's, they couldn't shut it down all the way. But what ended up happening, because we don't have portable air scrubbers available, we haven't been having this situation um, this intensely since 2017. By Thursday, the indoor air quality, it, the systems just can't keep up. When you're letting air in, and even if your filtration has increased like ours has been since COVID, you just can't keep up um, with the doors opening and this and that. And um, it's hard to describe, I think, for folks who weren't in the Western state, the really being inside of a chimney feeling everywhere, not just the smoke itself or the smell of smoke, but the grit coming out of the sky. It, it was pretty in intense. So by Thursday, we had to close because staff was becoming too uncomfortable in the building. We also didn't have enough staff to run the court anymore as the evacuation levels increased closer and closer to town. We actually, Eugene Springfield is a metro area, and many, many of our employees live in Springfield. And the east side of Springfield um, 
entered into a level two evacuation situation on Thursday, Wednesday afternoon or Thursday. And that's why we ended up having to close. We had too many employees in level two evacuations, plus too much smoke in the air. Over the weekend, then that first week, the building was able to catch up and we were able to reopen, um, although it did then get worse again. So I think listening to Bob has really helped me because now I'm going to invest in a bunch of portable air filters to have in this building because we're not going to get a new courthouse anytime soon. Yeah, and I'm telling you, they're very effective. I'll just give an example in rooms or in areas where we've deployed portable scrubbers. Um, the AQI was 400 outside, but in the room specifically where the scrubbers were in the adjacent area, it was air quality was in the 40s in most in most times. Uh, away from it, it was about double that, some more 80s. So they, I, I have to say they've saved us. Well, and I don't know about you guys, but I became obsessed with AQI levels during that whole situation. Obsessed. Who knew? I'd be looking at the AQI levels all the time. Is it 400 outside? Is it is it just slightly hazardous or is it extremely hazardous? Are we all going to die if we walk out? I mean, seriously, that's how we were thinking during that time frame. It was very intense. I'd like to see your internet history of how many times you check purple air. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to think about it. It's like you need an alert system, right? Just when it goes above a certain number. Final question based on your experience. What advice do you have for court administrators and clerks of court around the country? Barbara? Get a crystal ball. <laughs> I, I, I truly wish I had pearls of wisdom to share. I have learned so much through this experience that I would never have anticipated needing to know. You know, experts on, you know, air filtration systems, experts on um, building construction techniques, experts, you know, on public health and, and safety there just so many challenging things. I think the thing that has kept me holding on to sanity is being nimble, just just trying to, you know, be flexible and recognize that we have to be flexible. We're we're in a pretty rigid system. The the court system is not known for being nimble. We've discovered that we can be. And we've done a pretty good job of being nimble this year. And I think we really need to recognize that we we truly do need to be nimble. We should we probably should have been this nimble years and years ago. I've heard some suggest that actually this is a good thing for the court where there has been reluctance for so long about, you know, kind of innovating and utilizing technology to a greater extent. The, the pandemic has kind of forced that, that issue. So I agree. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think we're going to go back in a lot of ways. We've made changes that we're going to stick to that have been improvements. Um, so I think we have found a path forward that we hadn't really identified before. Yeah. Bob? Barbara must have seen some of my notes because I was like, that's my word. No, I think we, we've all ended up in similar places as I was kind of, I was trying to write out keywords, um, you know, because of advice, we're going to forget most of what we say, I'm sure. But I, I first wrote planning and, and then it, to me, it sounded a little hollow and cliched because, you know, we all have continuity of operations plan. We all have to plan. And I think the big lesson for this year is you have to plan for the unthinkable. Going through all these coop exercises the past 20 years, and I think I, I might have just inserted an eye roll in subconsciously, but the amount of time we've been planning for every contingency, well, how many came true this year, including ones that we never could have even thought possible? I mean, this court shut down for, essentially shut down for all except mandatory stuff for 75 days, um, having never shut down in modern history for wow. 
fires and earthquakes. So, you know, and, and that was common across California. I mean, we did mandatory stuff, but most of my people were gone for two and a half months. So you almost have to plan for the unthinkable. So planning, of course, is key. Barbara stole my whole next talking point, um, so I'll borrow it back. But I think um, adaptability and flexibility are so important. And, you know, some organizations like courts aren't always known for being nimble and in responding to crisis. What we have shown, though, this year is that they are. And um, we do have the ability to be nimble and adapt to new circumstances and be flexible. And again, that goes back to uh, resiliency. And I want to recognize, I think, recognizing resiliency is really important. So, you know, obviously planning, adaptability, flexibility, resiliency, really recognizing it, uh, especially with people who've been through so much. I mean, like here, like, you know, it's now it's what now? And it's almost a joke here. And then last, and I think this is really important because, you know, everybody's always going through something and usually you don't know. um, And that is to show compassion. And even if it's just checking in with somebody, and I don't mean emailing out, hey, here's our EAP resources, which we do and is important. But that personal touch of, and I think Barbara mentioned it about showing up and being there. And that's not always feasible, um, particularly those in, in larger jurisdictions. But just showing up and, and checking in with folks, even if it's with a mask 10 feet away waving, just saying checking in, I think that's really, really important. All right. Thank you. Michael. <clears throat> Flexibility, as has been mentioned, I think exhibiting leadership in the sense of being calm, uh, honest, straightforward, staying connected with people, being accessible, uh, having good teamwork uh, between management and the judicial team is critical. Communications, we're doing things that none of us ever contemplated when we got into the business. And I think maybe that might reflect on a maturity of court administration. I try to think back historically, what did the courts do when things like this may have happened before there were professional court administrators? And, you know, who knows? And Or maybe we are in unprecedented times, but I think there's been a real maturity of leadership and administration that has developed out of this, which I know that the center is is looking to take advantage of. But the fact that we're having this conversation for other leaders, to me, uh, is a significant step forward. And for me, that's a huge takeaway, having been in this business for a long time. Thank you, Michael. Liz. It's always bad going last in a group of such really unique and intelligent folks because there's hardly anything more to say. But when I was thinking about this, I was really thinking about how around the country, so many of our colleagues are dealing with the pandemic and the pandemic and Uh, derechos, the pandemic and hurricanes, the pandemic and floods, the pandemic and sandstorms. I mean, you name it. And so I think what we need to be ready for, and I don't necessarily mean on paper, because I'm going to join Bob in his major eye roll about uh, business planning. I, I hate it. I'm the most reluctant business continuity planner on the planet. But what we need to be ready for both in that way, let's do the work, but also in our heads is for that next thing. Be ready for that next thing. Be ready for an emergency and another one on top of that. And in Barb's situation, another one on top of that. And then sort of, I'm not really emotional, but emotionally ready and leadership ready to move forward regardless of the pylon. Because Bob's right, or whoever said it, it's almost a joke. What next, right? And so, there will be a next 
and in this year, it will be on top of a current situation. So those, those of you around the country who've been lucky enough not to have an and one yet, <laughs> get ready for the and one in your head. That's my only advice. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. Even though you were last, that was really wonderful. And I just have to say, I, I'm so impressed with all of you and your leadership skills. And I think that uh, the court community across the nation is going to benefit greatly. My thanks to Barbara Marcial, Elizabeth Baldwin, Bob Fleshman, Mike Rowdy, and Liz Rambo today for sharing their court's experiences dealing with demonstrations and the wildfires, all in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. We all have much to learn from what they've had to go through. My thanks also to my excellent co-host, Alice Roberts. Finally, my thanks to you court professionals listening to today's episode. Facing crisis on top of crisis, you keep the courts running. We deeply appreciate all you do. Join us in December for part two of our discussion. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. Thank you.